Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Stephen Koslin. Stephen is a former founding dean at Minerva University and now uh, founder and chief academic officer and president of Foundry College. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Eric. It's a real pleasure to be here. So Stephen, by, by way of introduction, when you think about the time uh, that you've spent since you left uh, traditional a- academia and have been a you know education entrepreneur, what is sort of the the thread that ties your post-academic career together? What is sort of the the thread you've kept pulling or, or the thing you've, you've been trying to do? How, how do you summarize it? Uh, a focus on learning as opposed to teaching. So the, the idea is to try to devise ways that will actually help students learn the material, which is a really different orientation than I had when I was in traditional academia. And say more about what the challenges were in traditional academia in terms or is it an incentive problem? Was it a just a, an educa- their own education problem about how to do it. What was the problem that traditional academia couldn't solve? Well, that, so I was at R1 institutions, uh, which are heavily research-oriented, obviously, by their name. And the incentive structure there is, is very much biased towards research. So promotions, uh, anything you can think of, was, was vastly weighted by how successful your, your research program was and not very much successful based on how successful your teaching was, even if you could assess it. Um, and there wasn't that much effort to actually figure out whether your teaching was really successful. Yeah. Give us a little bit of a historical overview because you, you were at Harvard, you, you did grad, grad work at Stanford, you, other places. What, what has sort of been the evolution um, of the university in the sense that we're, we're teaching and, and research once separated and then combined? Um, how, how did that play out and what were the effects of it? You mean for me personally? Or no, just more broadly, when you, we look at the last you know fifty or hundred years of academia, how did the modern university sort of become this combination of research and teaching? Well, I think I think there was a watershed period after World War II, um, where it turned out during the war, as I understand it, the military and government discovered that you know, people in the universities had valuable knowledge and skills, and they discovered that they um, weren't organized in a way to be able to tap into that talent pool efficiently. So the Office of Naval Research, for example, I believe was set up uh, in part to be able to ha- have a, a clear way to contact uh, researchers who had the expertise that was needed or useful. So a- after World War II, uh, you saw a huge growth in research budgets, and the, the money started driving uh, a lot of the priorities at, at the, the, the R1 universities. So that... It's only about 130 or so of the four or 5,000 universities. So it's, it's a relatively small number with a disproportionate um, influence. Yeah. And, and was the idea that these two tasks would be synergistic, but ended up not being as synergistic as, as played out? Yeah. yeah. The, the rationale was that faculty who are doing research are at the cutting edge of their fields. So they're uh, ideally positioned to be able to teach students uh, to become um, practitioners, uh, both as, as teachers and researchers. Yeah. And so, yeah, after you, you started, uh, helped start Minerva, what, when you talk about what, what, what was the real innovation there, what, what was sort of u- the unique insight that, that that was founded on? W- w- was it the learning as opposed to 
re research? Oh yeah, yeah. It was clearly uh, focusing on learning as opposed to research, but it was more than that. It was also this this idea that goes at least back to Benjamin Franklin. It's a very American orientation of practical knowledge, um, where the idea was most liberal arts programs focus almost exclusively on knowledge for knowledge's sake, uh, which is not necessarily bad for some people. Uh, just teach them stuff so they have a toolkit with lots of tools in it, and they can figure out later how to apply them as they're appropriate. Um, that works for a lot of people, but it doesn't work for a lot of other people. So the, the point of Minerva, uh, in part, was to think about what sort of knowledge would give them a foundation, a base, that could actually be used to improve their lives as the world changes. So I developed this idea of practical knowledge was based on production systems, which is a concept that Newell and Simon really developed. It came out of mathematics, something called post-production system, but, but they developed it in early AI, where the production is basically um, condition action pair. So you've got an if and a then. Uh, if it's raining outside, that's a condition. Get an umbrella. That's an action. They would develop these systems that have thousands of these things. And the idea is it'd be like dominoes. When some external event would trigger one, its action would then uh, satisfy the condition of some other one and trigger so forth. So I thought about practical knowledge in terms of what sorts of circumstances could automatically trigger some knowledge. And we developed a, a year curriculum a new kind of general education program based on this. And what do you think um, over the last you know, near decade that Minerva has been running that what has it proven and what is still yet, yet to prove or, or what has it changed its mind on in terms of how it aims to, you know, in a big way in terms of how it aims to educate. Well, so I've been gone from Minerva for a couple of years now. So I, I can't really speak for where they, they are now. When I left, it was a terrific curriculum. They, Particularly, the, the first-year curriculum was fantastically good um, in the sense of it was very systematic and organized and really did provide a foundation that I think will last those students the rest of their lives in terms of the kind of knowledge they can use to build on. Uh, the other piece of Minerva, of course, is the, the traveling around the world, which everybody always comments on, which I think um, it's probably a fantastic experience for a lot of the students. Um, when I left, it hadn't been quite as well integrated into the curriculums it could have been. Uh, I think they were working on that. I don't know where they are now. I can yeah. suggest some people you might want to talk to if you want to know more detail on that. And what else would you say is the tangible difference between a, a Minerva first-year curriculum and a Harvard or Stanford first-year curriculum? Well, general education. So curriculum in Western universities has three components typically. It has general education, has the major, and has electives. They're, they all have, have those. Um, general education is supposed to provide a broad foundation that you can build on for the rest of your life. Usually it's it's a Chinese menu, kind of, you know, three columns, uh, natural sciences, arts and humanities, social sciences, choose two from each. It's a, that's a distribution requirement. That's what they mean by general education. There's no structure. There's no attempt to, to build something that's coherent. Uh, so that was way different than what was done at, at, um, at Minerva, certainly different when we're doing it at Foundry. The major, uh, uh, often the majors typically are 
kind of legacy subjects that, that are essentially how departments are organized, which in turn is sort of aligned with research interests. Uh, so faculty often have the view they're t- teaching little mini professionals. You know, a sociology major set up to be somebody who's going to become a sociologist. Uh, psychology, same kind of thing. It's, it's, you name it. It's not, it's not necessarily looked at from the point of view of what will be useful for them if they don't become an academic. Most of that's people don't, of course. And then the electives, typically that's a seminar and it's on something that the faculty member's interested in. And it's rarely set up in terms of what the students might be interested in, let alone something that we build in a systematic way on general education, on the major, and then flesh it out somehow. So the whole system is kind of loose, I would say. It's not driven by top-down objectives about what what really would be useful for the students yeah. in a traditional university. And, and is when you talk about your venture now, how do we think about that in comparison to Minerva? Is it similar principles, but at a, at a broader scale? Or, or, or talk about what your mission is with, with Foundry and what problem you're trying to solve. So Minerva, when I left, was taking about 1.7% of the applications. It was extremely selective. And those students were really, really good. They were, they were Harvard level. They were going to do fine, uh, pretty much no matter what. They were really talented people. Foundry is really about helping people who may not do as well if they don't have this experience. Uh, working adults, and it's currently focused on a credentials program. So what Foundry has ended up focusing on is, is um, six courses, the last two of which uh, get you ready for a job. We have an arrangement with Salesforce where we will help you get the knowledge you need to pass their super badges and get you in a position to get an entry-level Salesforce an admin position. We've got a project manager um, certificate uh, through PMI Institute. We've got um, project manager institute, and we've got uh, currently a health a healthcare revenue cycle management uh, certificate we're working on. So the the trick is we didn't want to be vocational. So vocational. Let me give an example. There's somebody I actually I know two people who are on the board of a foundation in the Bronx where they. They work with uh, high school dropouts, and they teach them to fix cell phones. And you know what happens to cell phones after three years? No. They, they get uh, no, Yeah. And these students discover they're out of a job because they were trained narrowly and brittily how to fix those cell phones. They weren't given broad general principles that they could use to adapt as cell phones change. So we want to avoid that. So it Founded college, it's not just that we have 90 hours of instruction, two, two 15 week courses for each of these credentials uh, with a lab component on top of that, but we wrap them in four additional courses that we call professional soft skill courses. Yeah. So these are really directed at things that students can use. They're things like how to manage yourself at work, how to be proactive and responsible how to work effectively with other people on teams and, and work with a boss, um, how, et cetera, et cetera. So there's one in communication, there's one on learning, there's et cetera. So that they're really set up to give them a, a, a true foundation so that when they get a job, they'll be able to grow in it and flourish. In it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I've always wondered why, you know, Facebook or Amazon or Walmart don't have sort of like Walmart Academy or Walmart University 
such that they can, you know, train people for for their jobs and have sort of proprietary um, source of talent. I thought there's, and maybe you're doing some version of this, a startup opportunity for for a university to sort of white label that that experience for, for them. How, how do you well, think? We about- do, we, yeah, we do white label. So we we uh, we have a, several different kinds of relationships. One is, for example, so we have a foundation in a in a city that is paying to have um, a good number of residents take our program uh, because the credentials that we are uh, helping students earn um, give them jobs that can be done remotely. They yeah. can be done from anywhere. So that, that that's good. We're also, we're also working on white labeling. Uh, we're perfectly happy to do that. Um, Salesforce, I mean, all bets are off right now with the pandemic. I mean, before the pandemic, Salesforce was growing at a rate of about 37% of demand for Salesforce admins. Wow. And now I, I understand they've been letting some people go. So world change really fast. Let's just hope it yeah. springs back. T- totally. And so I'm curious to just get a better understanding of if you could wave a wand and change anything about how existing higher education works, you know, it now and in the future, what that might look like. For example, might you want to unbundle, you know, research and, and teaching, or might you want to unbundle sort of the liberal arts and, um, you know, a more professional or practical edu- education? Or are those some examples of, of what your sort of ideal, you know, higher education ecosystem look like? No, I, I know that's popular. That's been around a long time. The idea of, of take, uh, dissociating the research component and the teaching component. I actually believe in the original concept, which was, especially for graduate school, by the way, um, that is the people who are at the cutting edge of the field really are in a position to be able to teach. Uh, however, there's two components here. One is they should be taught how to teach. It's, it's shocking to me that most faculty are never taught how to teach. You know, graduate school teaches you how to be a researcher and you get thrown into it. And you're just expected to sort of know how to teach. And guess what you do? You just do the way you were taught, yeah. which, you know, was the way your professors were taught. And it goes back, right? Somebody stands up and gives a lecture and you write it down. Um, so I, if we're up to me, I would just take a lot more seriously the teaching part. I would train faculty. I would evaluate them rigorously and I would design the curriculum so it's student centered. Yeah. Uh, in the sense of really helping them accomplish their goals, which are not necessarily to become academics. Right. And, and, and do we have a problem where we have too many either grad students or, or people in uh, academia who want to be and not enough jobs for, for them within the existing academic system? Last I looked, we did. I haven't looked at that in, in a while, but it, last I looked, there were way more graduate students being graduated were academic positions. So that may not be bad, at least in some fields. I don't know about the humanities, but everything else, there there may be other niches where, in fact, people can contribute in a way that was unexpected. Yeah. I mean, look look at ed tech. I mean, are all these PhDs now working for big ed tech companies doing things that they probably didn't imagine they would be doing, but it turns out to be useful. So yeah. a little hard to say. When you, when you look, you know, from, from now and the work you're doing now till when you, whenever you stop working in the space and when you look at the legacy sort of that you, you want to make, is it that you want to have just create, you know, made it a lot easier for people to become better instructors and, and better learners? Is, is, how do you sort of define the core, you know, sort of contribution you wish to make in your remaining time working? Yeah, that's, that's a really uh, good question. And I think you sort of answered it. I mean, I, I know a little bit about science learning at this point. 
And I think in terms of applications, which aren't, aren't that many people who do it for whatever reason. So, yeah, I would love to see all this information that's been gleaned from thousands of laboratories studies uh, put to work, actually used in the field. And I, and I think we're well past the point where we know enough to be able to actually help people learn and help faculty teach. And so I'd, I'd love to be able to, to do that in a systematic way. Yeah. Do you have a request for startups in higher ed or, or more sort of, obviously you're working at Foundry College, but are there more innovations that you would like to see for budding sort of entrepreneurs out there who want to you know, improve or, or, or disrupt the, the space somehow? Sort of, you know, people like uh, like Michael Lai or Will Ho, like young education entrepreneurs out there who come to you and want to uh, do something innovative in, in higher education. Are there sort of uh, ideas you have that you think they should be working on that maybe if you could clone yourself, you might be working on? But uh, you're, you're focused on you know, Foundry College? That's a good question. I, I'm intrigued by the social aspects of learning. And it, it's, it's interesting to think about how to integrate that into project-based uh, learning more broadly in a structured kind of way. I mean, most project-based learning, it, you can think of project-based learning in terms of a continuum. On one extreme, uh, it's very unstructured and people just do whatever they want. And hopefully there'll be discovery discovery-based learning. And the other extreme is something like a chemistry lab where it's like a cookbook and there's a right answer. And it's both of those, I think, are pretty much a waste of time. There's something in the middle that's structured enough, but open enough. So there's some creativity and, and some discovery that you can do a lot of learning. Yeah. So, and I think it, it works best in the social context. So I'd love to see somebody work out how to do that at scale and figure out how to do it uh, virtually. I think a lot of learning is going to be done virtually, no matter how the current pandemic comes out going forward. Let's let's talk about that. Uh, what are sort of the trade off pros and cons of of uh, online learning, uh, and how do we sort of uh, adjust for it? Well, online learning is vast. I mean, it's just it's it's not even one medium; it's multiple media. So we can we can organize in two general types: synchronous and asynchronous. Where synchronous is like what we're doing right now. It's live. Uh, asynchronous is, is not live. But it's not necessarily at your own pace. It can be within a bracketed time period, um, but it's not at a particular set time with other people. So within those two large domains, there's an enormous amount that can be done going forward. For the synchronous part, you know, I've just written this book on this, which is largely focused on synchronous. I was struck by the fact that when faculty were forced onto Zoom with very little preparation, they uh, didn't do as well as they would have hoped, uh, which is not surprising. There was very little time for preparation. And they didn't understand the medium. So they would read a lecture into a camera and sort of hope for the best. And that was quite common. So there's a lot more you can do. And I, I've been focusing on how to do active learning online. The other piece is it turns out you can do a lot of active learning asynchronously and people have not been doing this for whatever reason. It does, you don't need anything more than Canvas has to offer to, to do it. You just need to be able to think about it uh, in terms of how you can get people interacting asynchronously in a way that, that does engage them and get, get some thinking it through and all the other sorts of things you want to deliver practice, give some feedback to get corrections for what they, the errors they've made and so on. I think there's, Within the two broad domains, there's huge opportunities to active learning that have not been followed up. How, when, and why 
does community connection matter for learning? So community connection has two components. There's the social component and then the, the real world solving problems that matter component. At least that's how I think about it. The social, so think about them separately. The, the social component is important because you can get feedback from other people. Uh, other people can help you to the extent you get stuck on something. And there's a kind of motivational aspect built in there. You don't want to be embarrassed or, or look bad in front of other people. So, so interacting with other people is really good for learning. The community part, uh, people are often motivated by solving real problems that matter. And there's no better place to find real problems that matter than the community. That makes a lot of sense. And, and, and from the teacher perspective, how, how can teachers ensure, or what are high-level frameworks for thinking about how teachers can ensure FAR transfer and, and real-world application? Yeah. Yeah. So FAR transfer. So transfer in general, near and far, probably the single hardest problem in the science of learning. It really, it's extremely hard. It, our, our brains are set up to be um, narrow in the sense of not generalizing in certain ways from one context to another. You can make up an evolutionary story about why that might make sense with respect to food and various other things. Who knows? Really? I mean, I don't know. Maybe somebody else. Knows, but I don't know what, why we're so incredibly context-specific in our learning. So far transfer, it seems like the only way you can really get that to work is if you have a lot of examples that populate the space and you give students the principle that ties the examples together. They got to have both of those. And so it takes some time and you got to get, you got to have them doing something. This is the way I think about it in lots of different contexts. So the first step is to think about what it is you want them to learn, uh, which now I know it may sound incredibly basic, but it's incredible to me how many people don't not backly in terms of taking a step back and think, what is it you actually want them to learn? The second thing you need to do is think about the domains in which you want it to generalize. And the third thing you need to do is think about how to populate the space with exercises or activities or assignments or something that'll get them thinking and get them familiar with that context. And then after you've done that, you can um, help them understand how the different examples really all tie together. But until they see the examples, the principle is going to seem abstract. It's got to be made concrete. The only way to do that is with examples. So, so it takes systematic thinking. It takes taking a step back, being, having clear objectives, thinking about it systematically. I heard you say uh, in another podcast that of all what we remember in any given day, only 5% of it around there is what we act, actively tried to remember. Yeah, that's, about, that's what I've found. That's, that's my estimate. That's right. So if you want to think about it, people at the end of the day can reflect back on what they did during the day. And, and I asked them, well, if you do that, you know, what percentage of what you recall do you think you actually tried to remember at the time it happened? And I've done this with well over a thousand people now, and, and the modal number is about 5%, uh, which, which would fit with things in the literature. So the point being that an enormous amount of remember is called incidental memory. So there's two, two big categories, incidental and retentional. Incidental memory is, is a byproduct of just paying attention and processing. So I don't know about you, but I, I read a fair amount of news. And it's amazing to me later in the day how I can recite back statistics and things for the news without having made any effort whatsoever to memorize it. In fact, it worries me sometimes I'm cluttering up my mind with all this useless stuff. But, but you really don't have to worry about that. It turns out the more you learn, the more, the more you can learn. It's, it's not at all a capacity thing if you fill it up. But, 
But yeah, it's amazing how much we can learn just by paying attention and processing. And so is the implication there to try to facilitate as much incidental learning as possible or, uh, or accidental learning in some capacity? Well, it doesn't have to be incidental. Uh, it, the reason incidental learning, learning works is because the more deeply you process information, more likely you remember it. So you can you can set up situations and, and you tell them that you're doing this so that that they can intentionally try to do it. But it may not matter. I mean, the studies show it, whether you intend to remember or not it doesn't really matter that much in in certain situations. There are other ones where it does, but in the kinds of things we're talking about now, just being led to do the processing is going to result in, in the memory later. And, and so it's really just about how engaged you know the material, like how captivated someone is by the by by the material or by the way it's presented. Mm-hmm. So there's captivated one way to look at it. that that's an intrinsic motivation. Uh, but you can have extrinsic motivations too. You can motivate them a lot by potential rewards. So it may not be they're captivated at all, but they know they better learn that stuff for a reason X, Y, or Z. Yeah, totally. And by the way, I have a whole chapter. On, I have an entire chapter on this in the book I wrote on intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. And with this extrinsic, because I guess one critique of of some education system is, yeah, you get the A, but you'll just forget it in, in the future. So is, does extrinsic, can, can you retain it or is that? Yeah. So there's a bunch of things tied up with that. So one of the problems with just giving them an exam and giving them a grade is they'll probably study the day before cramming. And we know that's an absolutely horrible way to learn something. You're, you're probably going to retain about 10% of it a week later if you cram the night before. So, so you want to set it up so they do what's called space practice where you do a little bit at a time, which is vastly better. And, can get into that if you're interested why and the other thing you want to do is give them a reason that it's important to remember this it's not just for the exam not just to get a grade but it's actually going to be relevant for my life so that's that's transparently obvious so at at foundry college we asked them after every class do you do you think what you learned today was useful uh, immediately or likely to be useful in a job in the coming years and it's an average, I think it's 87% say yeah, so over the classes. So we designed it with that in mind. And um, what, what's the quick uh, explanation as to why space repetition is better than, than cramming in terms of how the mind works? Ah, let me give you a, a, a counterexample and then we can generalize it. There's a beautiful, gorgeous study that was done by Godin and Badley in 1975 where they had uh, scuba divers. Learn lists of words, either sitting by the side of the shore at the shore or 20 feet underwater in scuba, dear. They had them study and learn lists. Okay. And then they later test them, either sitting by the shore or 20 feet underwater. So it's, it's a full two by two table. They, they learn in one condition and then they're tested in both the other conditions. What they found was 50% more memory if you're if you study and you're tested in the same condition, so you study underwater, you get tested underwater, you're learn, you remember a lot more than if you study underwater and you're tested by the shore. Or if you study on the shore, you're going to do a lot better if you're tested on the shore than if you're tested, under, tested underwater. Why? Context, in this case on the shore or underwater, are form retrieval cues, they're called. Associations you have that'll jog your memory. Okay? So... What you want to do is avoid that kind of situation, and that's what space practice does. So to the extent you have more different and varied situations where you study something, 
the context is different. So it's not sitting by the shore underwater. It's what you were just thinking about. It's your emotional state at the time. It's your surroundings. There are lots and lots of different things. Associations you make as you're studying. All these things, if they're spread out over time, will create more cues that'll help you dig the information out later. That, that, that makes sense. I, I want to talk to you a bit about, uh, you know, there's this critique. Some people say that university is going to be unbundled and that the elements of the university are, you know, you can put them into a few buckets. You can put them into the education bucket. And, and over the last decade, we've made a lot of you know, innovations in terms of MOOCs and things like that. Then there's sort of the network relationships, you know, yeah. coming of age bucket. And, and then there's sort of the, okay. the, creden- the credentials. And, and maybe there are other things too, but you can fit them under the, those three broadly. And that on the credential side, we're seeing innovations in that people are just sort of unbundling individual. So like Lambda School for Software Engineering, you know, yeah. you guys are trying to do, some people are doing it, you know, individual skills or just, or, or, or broad. And then on the network relationship coming of age, because it's COVID, now, you know, university has less of a advantage uh, there. How do you think about sort of the, the unbundling of the of the university and what's your mental model for it? So I think it depends on on the the goals of students. So over half of the people in boot camps already have bachelor degrees. So it, it they they want a better job. So if that's your goal, then yeah, you want to study to get a better job. I mean, it makes sense. But if you want to go to traditional college age students, I am still I'm contrarian a little bit on this now. Uh, I think the whole is more than the sum of its parts. I think the unbundling thing's a bad idea. I think by having students together, for example, who are having the coming of age experience with other people who are studying and learning the same thing so that they'll actually have that dimension of interacting with them if they're in the same class and so on, it adds another uh, strand of richness to the experience they wouldn't have otherwise if they're just in some camp or something. So I think there is a value, just, just as I was saying earlier about having really good researchers be teachers if they know how to teach and are interested in teaching. Um, I, I feel the same way about the experience. I think there's a lot of value in a traditional college experience uh, if it's done well. Yeah. Uh, but, but again, it's the sense of like the faculty haven't been trained with this mission in mind, really. Uh, administrators are you know busy trying to keep the institution afloat. It's, it's, it's In my view, it's time to take a step back and think about what this whole enterprise is for. By this whole enterprise, I mean higher education. And it may be that there are different components, like trying to get a better job, in which case, yeah, boot camps make a lot of sense. But traditional education also has a, a place. Yeah. And, and you know, when you think about the, the purposes of higher education, it, it's some combination, right, of, uh, you know, helping make better citizens, you know, better, uh, you know, uh, individual thinkers, uh, better, you know, people to contribute in, in the economy to produce in, in independent research to filter talent in, in some way. Is, is there anything I, I missed there? And do you think, you know, the, the colleges should try to do all of those things or are there some that should try to do more than, than others? Or how, how do you think about? Well, I think a, a liberal arts college ought to do all that. Plus giving them the foundation and a basis to be able to get a good job and grow in the job. Yeah. So a lot of that will be a byproduct of the kinds of things you said, but you have to think about it. You have to think about it. So, yeah. What, what do university administrators know about how universities are run that might surprise uh, you know, someone like myself or, or, or students or people who are just sort of interested in the business but you know, haven't really spent the time? I'm not sure I understand your question. What exactly do you want to know? What do 
you, someone who spent time at, at running a university from an administrative perspective, what might be surprising uh, or what might people not appreciate about the challenges of, of universities or why they're structured the, w- the way they're structured, maybe the incentives that the administrators well, have? I think most people aren't aware of how independent faculty really are, especially tenured faculty. And what uh, a challenge it is to, to manage an institution or get an institution like that to change in any meaningful way. Uh, it, it's very difficult when you have all these independent people who have their own incentives. And, and an, the incentives are not irrational. The system is set up in a certain way. Yeah. What's your best explanation or, or one you've seen about why over the past few decades the cost of higher education has just increased so, so, so dramatically? and any ideas for what could potentially, you know, bend those cost curves? Well, there's the well-documented arms race piece, you know, the, the lazy pool and the, the better um, amenities and all that. And then there's the recruiting of star faculty, um, you know, enormous startup costs for people in the sciences and stuff like that. Um, there, there are ways to deal with all, all these things, but it's tricky because you, you can't, collude with your competitors and agree that you're not going to do this anymore. There's, uh, you know, anti-monopolistic, uh, whatever laws in place there. So it's, it's tricky because as soon as one institution decides not to play the game, they're just going to get crushed by the other ones who are still doing it. Yeah. So it, it's, it's interesting. So I think Minerva was really, really smart. It's a good idea that Ben Nelson had just not to play that game at all. Yeah. Just to say, all right, we're, we're about, you know, a world-class, first-rate education. We're not going to uh, promote research. We'll support it. If faculty want to do that, that's fine. We're not going to reward it much. The reward structure is going to be based on teaching and just be clearly aligned with that set of goals and not, not get into playing the other kind of game, which I think will keep costs down enormously. The other, the other part of what Minerva did, right, is there's no bricks and mortar. So that, you know, all this uh, O&M, the maintenance and so forth of buildings and lawns and all this stuff that traditional universities are saddled with. I mean, that's not trivial. So if you eliminate that and make it virtual or you just rent your space, it cuts way, way back on costs. So, but again, it's it's all about taking a step back and trying to get clear-headed on what your goals are. Yeah. So what are your objectives? What do you want this enterprise to do? What do you want the students to learn? What do you want the faculty to be doing? It's very, very hard to change this midstream, especially, you know, hundreds of years later, you can't rebuild the boat at sea so easily. So that's a big advantage that Nelson had is starting from scratch. Right. I've, I've wondered why, you know, the, the sort of arms race you allude to in terms of nice campuses, is that sort of what the parents of the students want or what they think they want? Um, and are, are the parents of the students the real customers or are the customers, you know, governments that they're doing for funding or are there other customers or how, how do you think about that? That's a good question. I think. It's a combination of students and parents. I think the students will fall in love with the campus. They, they like the lawns and bricks and mortar. Uh, and the, the parents, some of them, most of them maybe, I don't know, just a guess, have fond memories of their own experience and whatever reminds them of that seems appealing or they want to be able to project themselves into the experience their children will have. And yeah. So look at it from that perspective. Plus, they, they really want a safe haven. They want something that's going to feel like a, a bubble that their child will be able to explore and blossom in in a, in a, a safe environment. 
Yeah, I guess. I think it's all about the, the projected experience. And so for people who are fascinated by this conversation and, and want to go deeper into your work, can you, uh, you know, plug Foundry where they can find it, your, your upcoming book as well? Yeah, Foundry is just, you know, just Foundry College. See that? Uh, the book's called Active Learning Online, The Five Principles That Make Learning Come Alive. That's the current topic. It's just been submitted for publication. They may just uh, start the current title. So the topic is the same. The publishers may decide they don't like the title. We'll see. But the active learning online part probably will stay the same. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming to the podcast, Stephen. This has been a great episode. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc. Dot